Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you so much for the invitation um, to be with you. And um, it is good to be back, to be back with New Hope uh, in whatever manner we're able to be together um, this morning. And so uh, it's been such a blessing um, even to, to be here. I was reflecting, we had our, um, we just recently had a, a son actually at the end of February. Uh, he was born on Fat Tuesday. And um, since then, as a family, we've not been able to gather in church um, since that time. And so I hear what you said about kind of grieving this, this time of loss and not being able to gather and all of the other things that are swirling around them. We've been feeling them as well as a family. And so, um, so it's done my heart very good um, to be here, uh, to be able to, to sit and to sing, and uh, even with a mask over my face. And I uh, hope you've been able to, to, to sing and participate from home or from wherever it is that you are as you join us in worship um, this morning. So um, I'm starting out by moving us backward. Um, and I, I find that to kind of be an odd way to even begin a sermon because backward itself is such an interesting word, isn't it? It's, it almost always, when we use it, we tend to use it more with a negative connotation. It's often, it's, it's rare actually that we, when we use the word backward or backwards, that we're using it positively. We, we tend to not value even moving backwards, especially in today's standards. By definition, it kind of stands against what we sort of, whether explicitly or implicitly value, which is progress. Right? We want to move forward, and you don't even have to be a, a named progressive to see how much we value progress as, as a culture. Uh, we want to move forward. We, we don't always want to go back, perhaps maybe with some notable exceptions. We even will use the term backwards to refer to some people who are not with the times or who are out of step. You know, that person's so backwards. Um, we often hear mo- mottos of others, you know, always, always forward. Keep keep going forward, keep moving on, etc. And I think, you know, there's some truth in these claims, right? Speaking against things like complacency, losing momentum, uh, this can even be helpful for people I know who are experiencing, uh, who are in a process of recovery. We want to continue to move forward. But it does betray this kind of particular viewpoint that to move backwards, at least at first, is kind of fighting against that negative connotation. And yet here we are today, this morning, beginning this series, holding up this direction as an important and valid intention, an important movement in our journey in following Jesus. And I've so appreciated how much we've already talked about that and and have been bearing witness to how important it is to reflect, to move backwards, and to dig into the roots of our shared legacy and story. And I hope today to call out attention to the ways that moving backward is actually essential to our growth in faith. And frankly, the neglect of this direction is, I think, even a peculiar challenge for the Western church today. Well, we're going to stay true to our text this morning, don't worry, but we are going to sort of use it as a jumping off point in different times to share. I'm going to share some of my own journey in this direction I'm going to share um, some other stories that relate to this direction about how, how I have moved and, and others have moved backward in order to faithfully follow after Jesus. But before we move any further, <laughs> uh, or, or rather I should say before we go backward together, I want to stand in the tradition 
of our text this morning by also proclaiming some good news for us today. So if you take nothing else away this morning, may you take this good news. In times of fear, in times of uncertainty and suffering, moving backward can firmly root us in the present. Moving backward can firmly root us in the present, granting us comfort for today and hope for tomorrow. Let me say that just one more time for us. In times of fear, uncertainty, and suffering, moving backward can firmly root us in the present, granting us comfort for today and hope for tomorrow. I was so struck by reading this short letter to the Church of Thessalonians, and it's frankly a letter, if, if I'm to be honest, I don't spend a lot of time in. It's, it's, it's full of a lot of end-time stuff, which kind of freaks me out, if I'm just going to be real. Um, I have some serious burnout from my, you know, left-behind, John Hagee-obsessed church days um, in the Baptist church that I grew up in, and that's for a different sermon at a different time. But I, I have baggage already when I come to this text, and so I was struck again reading this text and reading it today in light of what's happening in our world today in a time of national upheaval, it feels like, in a time of a, a global pandemic which has tugged on and exposed some of our deepest fears. And it's awakened us to the, the disparities that exist between us, health and otherwise. And then, of course, there's the nationally noticed deaths of black men and women at the hands of police and white vigilantes. We have protests. We have rubber bullets and tear gas and federal agents and and all of this has pushed suffering into our faces and into our news feeds. And it's concerning and it's worrisome and it's overwhelming. And rightfully so. It leads us to ask, how long, O Lord? Or perhaps praying, come Lord Jesus, fix this mess that set things right. And if you're anything like me, you're not too content to sit with the pain and to sit with the discomfort before seeking ways to resolve it. Our tendency is to look to the present for solutions or perhaps even to the future. Future for eschatological or political or technological hope, right? What are the things that we can look for that will fix this mess? And it's very understandable. We often hope for solutions to exist in the, the world of invention or innovation or discovery. Can we get a vaccine, please? Right? These are the things that we look forward to. And of course, especially as Christians, we also look to the future for hope, for the coming of Jesus as an ultimate source of hope and comfort for our King to return and to set things right. And these are understandable, and I want to even say laudable and good things in some ways to look forward to. But today I want us to consider what it might look like to look backward instead of forward to find hope. This is signified in the first word of our text today. In my translation, it says this in verse 13, but, but, 
we must always give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, because God chose you as the first fruits for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and through belief in the truth. But, up until this point in the letter, there's a lot of discussion about things that are wrong. A discussion about the day of the Lord and about judgment and about suffering and about the end of things and about vengeance and a desire for vengeance of God over enemies and questions about well, wait, has the day of the Lord come already? And we, and we missed it. Hint, it hasn't. A discussion about this person called the lawless one and, and Jesus defeating him. And, and like I said, not only do I have a sort of an allergy to some of these conversations, but I, there's a reason I didn't elect to, to preach the forward direction um, <laughs> this morning. But, and there's, again, that's a sermon for another time. But this is important for our context today. Essentially, this letter is saying this. Do you want Derek's paraphrase? This is going to be way worse than anything Eugene Peterson would do. But here's what the letter is saying. Things are bad. <laughs> Things are bad. They're bad for you. They're going to be bad for others. And some will say that your reason for hope has already come and gone. That Jesus is already back. Don't believe them. Things are going to maybe get a little bit worse. And then Jesus is going to come and defeat evil and set the world right again. All this is coming up before our, our passage for this morning. After this discussion about how, how bad things are, the suffering, the intensity, the, the feeling maybe of disillusionment that people were feeling at this time, there's this word, but. But, or and yet, we must always give thanks to God. Because God chose you, and because God called you. Because God chose you, and because God called you. I want to call our attention to this point first, that we look backward to give thanks to God for being chosen and called. These are past tense words as God's own. We look backward to remember that we belong to God and that God wants us. There's so much that surrounds these words, right? Chosen and called. I think, unfortunately, we, we get caught up in conversations that can obscure the point, theological debates on, you know, who God chooses and who God doesn't choose and how God calls and how God might not call. And this often it's called, uh, fits within the, the idea of the doctrine of election, right? This, this idea that God has intentionally chosen you, and really us, plural you, as God's own for God's saving purposes in the world. The good news for us, for us to remember when we are walking through times of suffering and of challenge and of disillusionment is this, that we belong to God, and this is on purpose, Specifically, this is in keeping with God's purpose for us. We, we have been and we are being saved from whatever turmoil or whatever evil or whatever chaos befalls the world. Thanks be to God. We belong to God. This is such good news. And it beckons us to look backward 
to remember that God has acted definitively in history to choose and to call us to remember, to remember the mercies of God. This word remember or, or the phrase do not forget shows up well over 300 times in our scriptures. Paul in Romans uh, lays out so much of this salvation story for the, for the Jews and Gentiles, out, outlining how God has worked so that all might be recipients of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And then, then exhorts us in, in Romans 12, therefore, in, in view of God's mercies, in, in view of all that God has done in the past, not just for you, but for us and for the world, our response is to offer ourselves in, in, as a living sacrifice, offer ourselves in service into the world. God's mercies. These are the things that we look to. These are the things that we look back and remember, especially in times of suffering and pain. There were two men, uh, Thomas Chisholm and William Runyon, who connected with each other via letter um, and shared story in the mid-1920s. They were both men who had served in ministry in the past, had been in pastoral ministry, gospel ministry in the past, and they were no longer able to serve. They had, um, for one reason or another, either because of family loss or because of, of health issues. Um, and I, there was one of them, I can't remember which one, I, I have to go back and look to my sources, but one of them who had to go before their, their who's a Methodist minister, had to go before sort of their ordaining board and was labeled ineffective. That was the word that they used for this person. Uh, ineffective in ministry, uh, to which he responded, how many hours and how many souls saved? And you're going to say that I am now ineffective for ministry. But of course, they meant that his, his health issues had gotten to the point that he was no longer able to serve in the capacity that he had before. And there was a lot of pain and suffering with that. And these two men began to write letters to one another. Chisholm, um, in, in, because he could no longer uh, serve in ministry, he became a health insurance salesman, particularly for, for people who were clergy. I imagine he had a, a strong connection to that. And then Runyon, who was a hymn writer, uh, or who, who was a pastor, became a hymn writer and a music director. And at some point in their correspondence, Chisholm wrote a poem based on his experience of struggling to believe that God is good and that God could be trusted in the midst of his own loss. And so he wrote this poem and he shared it with Runyon, who then put it to music. And a hymn was born. This hymn was, was published and included in, in a hymnal that was going to be used at Moody Bible Institute for their, their chapel services in the 20s. And then, and then a year later the Great Depression would hit. The song from that point seemed to spread around like wildfire, being sung in churches all over the country and becoming a treasured favorite, a new classic for these moody students. And then yet again in 1956, tragedy struck again when there were five missionaries who were well known to the community there. They were graduates from Wheaton who were murdered on the mission field while serving in Ecuador. And this news broke out 
in the midst of one of their chapel services. And spontaneously, at the end of this particular chapel service in 1956, the students were lamenting and crying out to God. And this new classic, this tune of lament and hope, poured from their lips. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. In the midst of personal loss, in the midst of suffering and of chaos, one of the best things, and perhaps even the only thing we can do, is to look back to God's faithfulness. To the way that God has come through for us, for our families, for those we share life with. But looking backward also has a corporate element to it. Again, this idea of being chosen is much more about being chosen as a people to be grafted in and to belong to the people of God, this long-standing and historic and ancient community. We belong to a people with a, with a history, with a story, a story that's been stewarded and passed down and taught again and again. You'll notice in verse 15 there's this exhortation. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions that were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by our letter. If backward wasn't already a troubling word, then perhaps tradition might be even more problematic for some of us. Tradition is yet another word that I think gets a bad rap. Undeservedly so in our society. It's often equated with being outdated, stuck, even a little paternalistic. It's one, it's one step away from another boogeyman word, which is legalism. But there's an admonition here to hold fast to these traditions. Some of which were written in letters, of course, which we have preserved for us in the scriptures. And then some of this that were passed on orally, word of mouth. Paul even talks about this elsewhere in 1 Corinthians. He talks about how he received a very key tradition that he passed on in 1 Corinthians 11, which is the practice of the Lord's Supper, the practice of communion, something that he receives and passes on. While the context here in 1 Thessalonians is 
is likely, when they're talking about traditions, they're likely only addressing kind of those specific traditions that relate to the, the end of things, the Lord's Day, the things that are being discussed in this letter. We see this working itself out in other places as well. In fact, we know that the content of the Gospels were very likely first told as these sort of individual or collections of stories themselves. The culture itself was very oral. This is how traditions were passed down, very different from our time today where we uh, depend heavily, or at least more recent, up until more recently, have depended so heavily on the written word. Now we're becoming even more digital, which is a new way of transmitting information. But at that time, it was heavily oral. We would pass down stories um, from storyteller to storyteller, and these were preserved in communities. And even communities themselves would sort of rise up around these shared stories. And then, of course, later we have these gospel writers who would, who would collect these stories and, and arrange them for us in the gospels, which, of course, were written after even some of the letters that we read in the New Testament. We have tradition to thank for these stories, for the compilation of the New Testament, for many other practices within the church. And for me, I began to to dive into this broader tradition of the church about 10 years ago. And it happened for me when my world fell apart. I went through a devastating personal loss. I don't know if you've ever been through something like this where you, you really, it does feel like the rug is just pulled out from under you. The foundation sort of crumbles, and you're left kind of holding the pieces and not really sure what to do with them. That's what happened to me. My faith felt completely uprooted and even kind of broken apart in my hands. I was never in a point where I was uh, no longer feeling as though I could believe in God, but I was deeply angry with God. Anybody else been there? Deeply angry, deeply disillusioned. And I felt stuck. I felt powerless. And I don't remember who recommended this to me, but I was referred to the practice of a new prayer practice, something that I didn't grow up with. I mentioned that I grew up Baptist, and our, our prayer practice was to have something we called the daily devotional, um, where we would have scripture that we would read. And I even had, I probably had about five different devotional Bibles. You know, they're all marketed for every, you know, devotions for teens. Well, I started with devotions for preteens, then devotions for teens, and then, you know, eventually devotions for men, whenever that was. Um, and uh, I was, I, that was my prayer practice. I would read devotions, kind of be like, okay, what's the nugget for today? And I've done my thing, and I, I move on with the day. And that was the extent of my prayer life. It's just what I knew, and it, it was good. But I'd never been exposed to some of these other ways uh, of, tr- these other traditions of praying. And someone asked me uh, uh, if I knew about uh, the, the, the practice of praying morning prayer, praying the daily office. And I said, I don't know what that is. And um, I, I still don't know who this person was. I'm trying to rack my brain to remember who it was that recommended to me. But they said, well, here, here's some guides for you. They directed me to this thing called the Book of Common Prayer. And I thought, okay, that sounds neat. I'll read that. And I just started praying. I started doing morning prayer Sometimes I would do um, evening prayer or, or night prayer, Compline, and, and, and I, it, it, these were foreign words to me in some ways, but also very familiar words. And I just did it, and I would read and dig into it and read some more, and, 
and I found myself being forced to read the Psalms every day. And my goodness, I found myself in the Psalms. If you are ever, if you're ever in a place where you don't feel like you have language for what it is that you're feeling, if you're ever in a place where you feel so discouraged, you feel alone and isolated, my goodness, you can find yourself in the Psalms. You can find words that you can't articulate otherwise. And that's what happened for me. I, I, I found, it was almost as if somebody was reading my journal and then had put the words back on the scripture pages for me. And I, these were things that I was feeling deeply. And, and I, I was reciting these, these old words, these creeds and faith statements, things that people had been saying for centuries, um, words that we know many have fought over and for. And slowly, so slowly, I felt as though I was, rather than being uprooted, I was being replanted. And replanted in different soil. It, was, it felt deeper. It felt more rich. It felt like it had been there for a while. And my, my thirsty soul started to send roots deeper and deeper into the soil for nourishment. I was finding language for my hurt. I was praying words about God's faithfulness that perhaps I didn't feel, but I longed to believe. I was moving backward when I felt stuck. I was moving backward, back into a deep tradition, a tradition that began with with monks, like in the 6th century, these scheduled daily prayers. And I began reading these early church fathers who were only generations away from the apostles. And I began attending churches that would allow me to take communion and had these older-sounding liturgies where I could pray along and where I could come, come and receive Jesus in the Eucharist when, when I needed him most. I had grown up taking communion, but in this season I learned to receive it. Coming forward with open hands because I had nothing in them. I was discovering and rediscovering the traditions of my own faith, a legacy that I had not really known. You know, I, I mentioned that I was, I was raised as a, as a Baptist and I'm, I'm very grateful for that upbringing, and my dad's a Baptist um, minister and pastor, and, um, but there was, there's some quirks that we all have in our own faith traditions that we, you know, I can poke fun at them because they're mine. You can't make fun of them uh, because then I'll get upset with you, but, but I can make fun of them. And so uh, there's this, there was this thing that I started to notice in, in my tradition is that we, we kind of valued the first, like, few decades of the church maybe the first century of the New Testament church, and then we kind of would just skip over about 1,500 years and then start again with the Reformation and then talk about some of the great things that would happen then. And I realized that I'd had this, this gap, this learning gap. I had missed out on some curriculum and needed to go back and rediscover that. And that ultimately led me to as Joe mentioned, enrolling at St. Mary's at the Ecumenical Institute, where I was able to continue to explore and uncover these things to learn um, that there are questions that I have that a lot of people have asked way before me, and I need to know their answers, and I'd benefit from knowing their dialogue. And um, I was ordained as a minister of the gospel in 2012 by the church I was serving at at the time, and 
I knew that in that moment I was inheriting a tradition of serving Christ and his church, but it was also a tradition that I feel like I was just beginning to know. And so I wanted to share just a, another personal way that that tradition has been handed down to me and something that I thought about as I was thinking about preparing to be with you today is that um, my, uh, on the day that I was ordained, which was um, in May 2012, my grandfather um, sent me something in the mail. Uh, my grandfather is, he just turned 85 years old. Um, he's been uh, in ordained ministry for over 60 years and um, is a uh, old school uh, Southern Baptist preacher and evangelist. And he, when I say old school, like he wears that with pride. Like he, he loves that about himself. And uh, his name is, is James Harris. And he sent this to me in the mail um, the week that I was to be ordained. And this is a cop, this is his Bible. This was the Bible that he was given when he was first ordained into gospel ministry. And um, so he, um, he sent it with a letter and a note inside. And I wanted to just share that with you all. Um, this is the Bible that was given to me when I was ordained June 23rd, 1957. And then I love, there's a little, um, pre on the presentation page here, it says, you know, presented uh, at Victor Baptist Church, June 23rd, 1957, at ordination service, and then in different ink underneath that, this Bible retired June 4th, 1964, from active use. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's, very, it's barely holding together, even as I'm holding it here in front of you. And I was just, it, it was something that caused me yet again to have a visual reminder and a memento of the tradition that I benefit from. I, I was actually, I came to faith in Christ under my... Sorry about that. Yeah, I, I came to faith under my grandfather's preaching, and so it's a reminder that there are still things that I carry forward as, as a part of that legacy even today. And something that I look back to in hope, oftentimes, to remind me of God's faithfulness, not just to me, but to so many others. So why do I share all this with you? It's certainly not to convince you to take the path I've taken or, or to to identify, and maybe you do identify with parts of my story, but it's in a certain way to bear witness to the value and efficacy of seeking to stand firm and to hold fast to the traditions that are passed down to us by our spiritual foremothers and forefathers. Because the thing is, we can't hold fast and we can't stand firm in that which we do not know, in that which we're not aware of. And we also can't critique and challenge maybe even some of the more problematic inheritance of our shared history. And there are problems that we also inherit as well as treasures. But we can't challenge them unless we know them, unless we dig and discover them. We can't move forward 
or in any other direction for that matter, without spending ample time going backward. And this is just one of the things I really admire about New Hope as a community, is that, you know, she's not a typical non-denominational church. Maybe you've heard that before, um, but you're, you're not typical. And I mean that in a good way. <laughs> I mean that in the best way. In my experience, and again, this is in broad strokes, many non-denominational churches seek to sort of be functionally ahistoric, meaning they're obsessed with the now, with relevance, with independence, with being innovative. And I could actually, there are many other churches in other denominations who would also be guilty of sort of the same things. But I know this because I pastored one. <laughs> and I know this because I've been obsessed with those very same things. In fact, I, I had a realization about this while talking to my wife uh, about, uh, I was writing a paper a couple of years ago, and this will be the last story, story I share, but um, I was, I was doing what I often do, which is like coming home from class one night and just like gushing about all the things that I was learning. God bless her <laughs> for listening to me. And I was sharing all that I was learning about some of these ancient Christian practices of prayer and worship. And she was listening intently. And so she paused and she said, oh, I see. So it's like the difference between flip or flop and rehab addict. My wife, at that time, watched a lot of HGTV, which meant I watched a lot of HGTV. And I said, yeah, sh sure. Wait, what? <laughs> Can you explain that to me? And it, for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, there are these two different shows. And again, I haven't watched HGTV in a while, but I remember these two shows, Flip or Flop and Rehab Addict. And these were two shows that talked about how people would basically find a house and seek to like redo it, right? But Flip or Flop, this couple specialized in flipping houses. They did it for profit. They, they would buy homes at auctions, really low prices, and they would make these purchases sight unseen. And you know, the thing where they'd always have to deal with some issue that would come up, right? And, uh, but then in order to protect the investment, flip the house, make the most money, each house renovation followed a sort of formula. You could see it play out again and again. Granite countertops, stainless steel appliances, open concept, recessed lighting, wood floors, and generally a modern feel. All of these, these houses would look almost exactly the same. And they do this because they know that it sells, and it allows the process to take a shorter amount of time, and it allows you to sell quickly for the highest dollar. The work's driven by values of what's relevant, how do we get this done as fast as possible, expediency, and what does the market demand? But the, re the show Rehab Addict is very different. The host, her name's Nicole Curtis, she advocates for the preservation and restoration of existing architecture over and against demo, right? So usually on flip or flop, they would have these big demo days. They just basically completely gut the house, leave the bones, and then completely redo it. But that's not how she did it. Her work often centered around like pre-World War II era homes. And her renovation philosophy was to restore old homes to their former glory rather than going for modernization. She'd, she'd search for materials from the same time period. She'd use old photographs of the house as a constant guide. It was a labor of love. This sort of rehab philosophy would allow for the house to be restored rather than simply remade into something that will yet again be fleetingly relevant until it isn't, right? 20 years from now, 
people are going to be like, shiplap? Really? How many more houses can we have with shiplap in old farmhouse style or whatever? It'll be the new, like, faux wood paneling. We know this. Uh, for those of you who actually care about these things, you're connecting with me. For those of you who don't, it's fine. Um, you can just zone out for a second. Um, but there was something so interesting about this care and attention that Nicole would take in, these, in this rehab process. And it's something that really spoke to me as I, as I reflected on that. I long for us as communities of faith to also seek to balance our desire for relevance with a self-aware an intentional practice of restoring some of these more meaningful and deeper practices of our shared history. As Joe said, we, we didn't just come up with this idea of Christianity in the last decade. We stand in, in line with a cloud of witnesses, with people who have gone before us, people from whom we can draw on their wisdom. We can learn from their mistakes and missteps, and so, I, again, I really appreciate that about this community at New Hope, that, that you, you really do seek to draw on the breadth of your shared tradition. You invite people like me to, to preach and talk about these sort of things. You, prop, you partner cross-denominationally to dig into the legacy of your faith. You care deeply about your neighborhood, which is something that the church has a long history of, and I think in some ways has forgotten more recently about caring about our literal neighbors that are around us. So, please take this, term, this sermon as more of an invitation. Keep digging. Keep sending your roots deeper into the common soil of our tradition. If, if something intrigues you, explore it. If something concerns you or upsets you, learn more about it so that you can wrestle with it and with what to do next. There's so much to discover about the depth and breadth of God's faithfulness as we look backward to all generations who come before us. And yeah, we'll probably discover some lead paint, some asbestos, shag carpeting <laughs> along the way. These are opportunities for us to learn and to grow even benefiting from some of those poor choices as being instructor, instructive for us now today. And I believe that when we do this, when we take the time to move backward and more deeply root ourselves in the legacy of our faith, both our own spiritual legacy having been, been chosen by God and our more historical and traditional legacy, that when storms come again, or as we continue to endure the storm that we're in now, that we will have deepened our roots so that we may stand firm and hold fast. Our roots and the rest of the tree will be strengthened, not only to withstand the storm, but also to be strengthened in every good word and work that we do, all to the glory of God. So let us move backward from this place, <laughs> or from wherever it is that you are this morning, remembering the loving mercy of God toward us and all whom he has made. Let us draw our minds and hearts to those who've gone before us, upon whose shoulders we sat, and from whom, whose work and sacrifice we now benefit. May the faithfulness of God 
be evident to us and others. And may it bring us comfort and strength in trying times. Amen.